It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, we welcome back James Davalos onto the show, a portfolio manager at Horizon Kinetics. James joined the firm way back in 2005, and now he manages both the Inflation Beneficiaries ETF, which is INFL, and the Internet Fund. The Inflation Beneficiaries ETF has had amazing success to date. After launching just back in January last year, it's now got over $855 million in AUM, that's dollars, and it finished last year up 26%. In this interview, however, we dig into the inflation narrative that we're seeing today, discussing how much leeway the Fed actually has to raise rates, what would be the consequences of persistently higher inflation, and why we should all be looking at capital light business models. Enjoy. Hi, James. Great to have you on the show again. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Excited to be back. Uh, lots happened in the last year. Oh, God, there's so much happening at the moment. And uh, of course, you know, topical as always, we want to talk about uh, the inflation narrative is going on, and obviously you're an expert in that area, so it's, it's great to have your insights in that. And it, you know, it's obviously on everyone's minds at the moment because the market appears to all be moving in tandem with each other based on you know the expectations from what what the Fed's going to do. Seems like every day at the moment we're getting sort of daily nuggets from the Fed hinting about their sort of uh, potential policy choices. Feels like well, the market's pricing in 100% chance of a rate hike uh, in, in March, I think, or at least this year. But there's sort of, you know, it's not clear what the quantity and, and size of them will be over the course of the year. And a lot of the banks are like differing on, on those sort of opinions. Um, and obviously, this is all based on what they think uh, inflation uh, will be. And it'd be great to get your insights on, on the Fed meeting last week and what you, you took from it. Yeah, I, I think it's complicated because, especially here in the US, and I'm sure even, even over uh, in the EU and in the UK, People are inclined to look just solely within their domestic economy, but especially with the dollar being the global reserve currency, the implications of what they do, how quickly they do it, how high they can hike to are just profound, well beyond the mandate of the Fed. And so, you know, we can get into this later, but the Fed's mandate is really just to have stable prices and full employment. But when you think about the ramifications, the second derivative, the third derivative of what rate hikes would do, um, they don't have nearly as much bandwidth to operate as people might think they do. And I'll just get into that quickly. So just beyond the obvious, which is the tremendous amount of debt that the U.S. has at the federal level, the state level, the local level, um, higher rates obviously make that debt burden that much higher. So there's clearly an incentive to reduce that via inflation and a debasement of the dollar. But what is acceptable? Is it 3 4 5%? Hard to say. But look onto the knock-on effects. If we raise too aggressively and the dollar gets too strong and you see big capital outflows from emerging markets, a lot of which have dollar-denominated debts and a lot of their current accounts are basically predicated on their currency's interaction with the dollar, that could cause really, really severe ripple effects. And 
I, I think that's what Xi was thinking when he basically told a lot of the world leaders, hey, you know, maybe take a second look at raising rates. Uh, but then more domestically also in the U.S., uh, you know, obviously the, the knock-on effects to housing are enormous with the, with the amount of wealth that a lot of Americans have in their house. Then let's look at pensions. So pensions are going to have a really difficult time with the 10-year yield below two. So they're embracing more and more risk assets, namely private equity. So if you start hiking rates and all of a sudden you don't get multiple expansion and you don't have these kind of magically smooth returns in a levered up volatile asset class, what is that going to do to pensions and endowments? And they're not worried about Steve Schwartzman's uh, two and 20. They're worried about the Texas teachers, the Calsters, the Illinois State Pension Plan, which are in really, really bad shape. So the knock-on effects of what they can and can't do, both with how quickly they hike and then the terminal level of, of where rates are, yeah. um, I think they have way less more room to operate than conventional wisdom might suggest. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to another point that um, I've heard people discuss before, is the Fed you know, using rhetoric to try and meet its agenda without actually changing rates and stuff. And to a certain extent, that's already happened. You know, you've had huge um, reductions or depression in prices from certain areas of the market, only slight, slight reductions in other areas. Is that something they try and do? How often does the Fed actually deliver on what it implies it will do? Is that something you've looked into at all? Yeah, look, it's worth a try, right? If you can basically just use your rhetoric and try to basically adjust rates and adjust break-evens and adjust um, kind of economic conditions and market expectations simply through um, what you're indicating you may or may not do, it's, it's worth a shot. But I think that a lot of people seem to have a similar view to me, which is that their ability to operate is really far smaller than I think what what people would like to imagine, even what the Fed thinks that they can ultimately do. But you know, one thing they've been very good at, especially in the modern era of the Fed, is they are very sensitive to what the market is pricing in. Uh, you know, they hold regular meetings. I think Jerome Powell looks very closely at what Fed fund futures are pricing in uh, and some of those other markets. And so they want to make sure that I think the market has a long leadway into understanding what they're going to do, how, where, and why. But the really tricky part going forward, and I think that the lines have been blurred probably going all the way back to Greenspan, so a good 20 years now about you know how independent is the Fed from the politicians, whether it be the Senate uh, or, or Congress or the White House, and how does that influence decisions? And so I think now you're blurring the lines about the, the dual mandate about stable prices and full employment. So it's worth a shot, and I think that they definitely do not want to surprise the market. And if they are going to basically pivot, they tend to put a pretty big trail of breadcrumbs out for people to follow. Yeah, I think that's already started happening a little bit already. And how often does the Fed actually get this stuff right? Because I know their mandate is to, you know, their policies they're trying to use to hit their mandate. But I've heard it's not, they're not great at sort of managing this in a way that, you know, the economy benefits the most out of it. Yeah. And it's, again, I think this also goes back to, they're not this omnipotent power that can wave a magic wand and then basically directly influence all of these facets of the economy that they would like to. But um, I think right now it's objectively, you could say they're behind the curve because inflation is running high. The labor market is incredibly strong. Uh, They've shifted to basically stating that they feel as though inflation is going to be a bit more structural, but 
I would argue that the risk of tipping the mark, the economy into recession is far larger of a risk than to have inflation running a bit hot, especially relative to the to the benefit of of debasing debts. And so, you know, I think that they haven't been great historically, but a lot of it's been the fact that they just don't have this power that people might think that they have to influence everything at all times. And so let's go through some of the sort of potential scenarios going forward. So this first scenario, which was sort of implying, you know, the Fed is unable to raise rates too high because they're risking a recession, right? Is that, is that the one that you think is, is the most sort of likely going forward? I think that they're very sensitive. I don't think that there's the political wherewithal. I don't think that there's any desire within the Fed or the government to basically tip the economy into a recession. But uh, it's also the market can kind of be the tail wagging the dog. So the 60-40 portfolio through January, it's down about 4.5%. And, and if you start having a wealth effect knock on and you know the bond market is far more sensitive to a rate hike. I mean, you, you could argue about these profitless tech companies and you know hard to say that they shouldn't have gone down 50%. A lot of them should go down another 50% and then still be overvalued. But people sitting in, let's say the Barclays Ag or, or a similar portfolio with seven plus years duration clipping two-ish percent. A couple rate hikes gives them some pretty ugly mark-to-market losses there. And again, I was saying that on the whole way up, the fact that bond prices were going up, yields were going down, and equities were surging at the same time, if those correlations go to one on the way up, they can certainly go to one on the way down, and then things get pretty tricky pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And from your point of view, do you think the Fed would rather uh, avoid recession than you know, run with hot inflation, basically? I do. I think there's a lot more that you can work with under hot inflation than a full-on recession. And the other thing is, what is a recession anymore? Because the moral hazard of debt, it seems to have vanished, where for the life of me, I still can't understand how there weren't a lot more defaults in 2020. And it just appears as that, okay, there'll be, they'll allow little isolated pockets of debt strife, but there's just no wherewithal or no desire to allow that segment of the market to have real tumult. And you know, because of that, you're seeing high yield and bank debt and all of these fairly risky tranches of debt products trading at just wildly tight yields. And you know, if you really allow a recession, but then don't backstop that stuff, then stuff can really spiral quickly. So you know, I think they can manage moderate to even high inflation without really deleterious effects on the average person. Whereas a full-blown recession, especially if they don't backstop asset prices the way they've done in the past two recessions, um, can really spiral out of control quickly. And I I think they're sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. Do you think, though, they will try and test the market with some hikes first and then be forced in, you know, their hand to be forced because they will see the the data coming out, but you know, the economy starts to stall. Is that sort of the likely scenario? Possibly. Again, I think if they're hiking rates where the market is strong enough, meaning that there's real economic growth and there's real consumption. So, you know, let's let's throw out a Goldilocks scenario where it appears that people, a lot of the Western European governments are starting to treat the, the current pandemic as more of an endemic. So if companies and individuals start to view the world in that way and that this is a successful policy, 
businesses can start investing. And you know, one of the missing ingredients in this whole recovery going all the way back to 2009 has been the velocity of money. So the demand for deposits and the demand for safety has been extremely high where you haven't seen a lot of that money circulate into the economy. So if we are fully shifting into endemic, businesses are going to say, hey, I've been sitting on my hands for long enough. I'm going to invest. And this is individuals in the private sector. And you know, there's a lot of public sector spending that's needed. Whether or not they can finance it is a whole other story. So if that is the Goldilocks scenario, yeah, I think the economy can handle a couple hikes. But you know, I think once you get up to a certain level, then it starts to get a lot trickier. But there's the capital markets issue too, where there's just trillions and trillions of dollars mm-hmm. sitting in things with just ultra high rate sensitivity, which again, is the tail going to wag the dog with markets sending the economy in, in, into, into a recession. And let's say, um, if we just think about the next you know, sort of five, 10 years, is there sort of a, is this a secular change where, where, you know, uh, we're going to have to get used to running with inflation at higher levels because of you know the inability, perhaps, of them to use interest rates as much anymore. Yeah, I, I think so. I think also there's the limitations of of the debt load, but also the the Western world in particular has benefited from importing disinflationary forces from the East, and as you start seeing rising standard of living, higher. Um, economic growth in non-OECD countries where you can't just basically manufacture at a loss or have this huge labor arbitrage. Now they're actually competing for a lot of the same goods and services that we've had for extremely at extremely cheap levels for the better part of the last 30 years. And so if that changes, especially we're competing for the same finite universe of hard assets, um, you could see a really big shift where durable goods which has been in a steady downtrend for decades, starts to pop up. And then maybe you could see more pressure on non-durable goods and services. I don't know if it's going to be enough to offset each other. But yes, I think the structure of the economy as it's matured and globalized in conjunction with where rates are and debt levels are, we're just going to have to accept something higher than the historical 2% odd inflation that we've gotten so used to. Yeah. Okay. And- is stagflation also a possibility? And if so, what, what might be the implication for, for asset prices? It certainly could be, especially when you look at government policies that have shifted away from, again, a lot of these durable goods, more in the PPI as opposed to the CPI basket that are requisite for a modern functioning economy. So energy, um, base metals, in particular, copper, agriculture, things like that, where the private sector hasn't really invested because the market returns have been really difficult over the last 10, 15 years. But then on top of that, you've had top-down pressures on on how to spend and ESG and and a lot of these other trends that I think are going to be inflationary, extremely inflationary. So yes, in, in that scenario, I think there's a lot, there could be a lot of stagflationary pressures and you could see the entire structure of the global economy shift back to kind of the the old economy where these finite goods took precedent over a lot of the services and a a lot of the digital services that kind of have have come to dominate over the past 15, 20 years. But if that happens, it's going to be a really, really difficult time for broader markets, especially things like technology and healthcare, because they're going to have margin contraction. They're going to have 
difficulty growing their top line in real terms. Uh, do the multiples compress? I'd certainly think so. So it, it could be where you know very small segments of the market do very well, and the broader market, and again, these sectors, the materials, the precious metals, the energies, the ags, they're down to a de minimis amount of global indices, whether it's the Aqui, the S&P. So um, yeah, I, I think it could be really tricky if that ends up coming to fruition for the broader markets and risk assets. Yeah. And could you possibly take us through how the inflationary cycle works you know, from business to consumer impacts? Yeah, and I, I think every cycle is different. Um, this cycle, clearly, we've seen the leading edge being these durable goods. So again, the PPIs, and uh, you could argue that some of that was supply chain oriented. Um, I think a lot of it's going to prove to be a lot more structural, mm-hmm. um, but ultimately that's going to affect businesses. And so the knock-on effect is that you're seeing businesses over the past year, anywhere from the Unilevers, the CPG companies to McDonald's, where they have a a huge labor component, Um, Amazon and FedEx having to pay their hourly employees a lot more. So that knock-on effect to the business, and thus far, you haven't seen a lot of margin pressure, but I think you're going to start seeing margin pressure. Um, The quote, good inflation will be if these, let's call it lowest 50th percentile of income bracket tend to be hourly waged people can start seeing higher wages, higher standard of living. And then those people and those households have the highest propensity to spend. So if you have a wealth effect there, then it's a vicious circle where then they start pushing up prices. And then it's kind of, again, this cycle back on onto itself, where then does the Fed ultimately have to act? But there's a lot of kind of friction points in there where there can be knock-on effects that kind of derail that cycle. But I think without anything breaking down, that's that that cycle of how it really goes from the PPI to the CPI, companies, wages, mm-hmm. median household, consumption, and then rinse, wash, and repeat. And you mentioned it very briefly just then. How much of this do you think could possibly be due to supply chain issues? Because obviously, you know, everyone's disagreeing on this, but sort of Kathy Wood thinks it uh, supports her ETFs to have this sort of mindset, obviously, but she thinks a lot of it's down to supply chain issues. You think it's down to more structural sort of stuff with, you know, the printing of money, et cetera. How much do you think is actually down to the supply chain stuff? Are we talking just a small amount? Yeah, there's niche markets where, first of all, if it was just supply chains, you would not see a broad basket with every item up. Yeah. You would see, hey, okay, there's an issue with cars or chips. Okay, that's up, but everything else is kind of fine. But if you went through a list of all the components of CPI, uh, it's pretty broad based. And I think that there are some areas where there's obviously, we can, quote, flick a switch once things get to normal and it should normalize. So autos, use cars. The world can can build more cars. The world can fab more chips. Um, You cannot easily get a lot more copper. the, The IEA says 15 years for a greenfield project. And basically, that needed to start 15 to 20 years ago to get enough copper to supply this, quote, green transition. Um, similar with fossil fuels. It's, it's wild what people were paying for TTF gas for, for delivery into Europe just very recently before a few LNG cargos landed. Um, but now, if you look at what people are paying in the Northeast, the Northeast United States is paying something like $30 an MCF. And that's structural because 
you can't just flick a switch and fix supply. I think ag is going to be another area where you can't just flick that switch. And then the other big one, which hasn't even hit CPI yet, is housing. Yep. So whether it, it owner's equivalent rent and, and other derivations of housing are about or lodging and shelter are about 25% of CPI. And to say that it's only up 3% year over year in December is just, I don't know how they come up with that number. And a lot of very smart economists show that it's there's a lagging effect of six, nine, 12 months there. But oh, wow. once they really impact housing, which has just gone absolutely bonkers here, yeah. Um, you know, that's going to add some tailwinds to the CPI number as well. So no, I, I don't think, I think there's some very niche, obvious, identifiable supply chain bottlenecks, but it's certainly a more broad and, 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 and spread out structural issue that's, that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you're know, the increase in house prices. Is that, is that something that stay around? Like they've gone up a huge amount. I know of, uh, it's like massive amounts I've seen in the U S because they've been quoting it all, all the time. And is that, is that going to stay around? Because if inflation's still here, it's going to, you know, the price of it is, is it, as an asset is just going to stay high. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, if right now the affordability of houses is just wildly, it, it's phenomenal because mortgage rates are so low. And the fact that people can still get 30-year mortgages at around even below 3%, it just makes the affordability so phenomenal. But a statistic that I think a lot of people miss is there is a large glut of superfluous housing that was developed. A lot of condos in markets like Miami and even some more fringe markets uh, leading up to 2008 and 2009. But the narrative, we never really replaced those housing. So if you look at historical trends of how many new households are created in an average year, how many old units are removed from the market, either by being kind of redeveloped or obsolescence or anything like that, a lot of really brilliant macro people have been waiting for that to catch up for over a decade. And you, you can see it by people who have been in timber stocks just waiting for that catch up and it never happened. So again, going back to structural supply, you can argue what caused that um, lower than historical trend growth in new household formation. And then obviously the market is going to supply to meet demand. But now there's Almost, we're almost reconciling seven, eight, 10 years ever since we worked through that first inventory overhang in 08, 09. So I think there's, there's a heck of a long way to go still. And the only thing that could really break it would be a dramatic surge in mortgage rates. Mm-hmm. Which is not going to happen if they don't raise rates too high, right? Exactly. Yeah. Everything's benchmarked to the 10-year or, or, or some equivalent. Yeah. And so potentially you could maintain high prices then? Certainly looks that way. Yep. And then... Um, what about bond prices? Is this something you follow a lot? And what are they telling you about sort of the expectations of, of what's going to happen to inflation? Yeah. And look, this is controversial. And I know that a lot of the academics and a lot of the global macro people out there that are listening to this are going to take strong exception with this. But I don't think that bond markets are as indicative or predictive as they have been historically. Um, yeah. And this goes all the way back to 2009. So. Again, you can argue, you can argue what the appropriate risk premium should have been for a ten-year bond going back to two thousand nine, two thousand and ten. But for effectively eleven years, the real yield on a ten-year U.S. Treasury has been under one percent, mm-hmm. and that's if you accept CPI. You know, it might be beyond the context of our conversation here, but I don't think CPI is even remotely reflective of people's actual cost of living expense. 
I think that real inflation much more closely mirrors M2 money supply growth, which has been six and change. Yeah. So, you know, that real 1% yield could then drop to negative three, negative four for the better part of a decade. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, equity markets have been in an absolute tear ever since then. So has, has the, was the 10-year indicative of economic strife for that entire 12-year period? I would argue not. And so today, we're kind of in uncharted territory where we've been negative in real terms on the 10-year, the, the highest ever, actually, negative yield on the 10-year. And you know, I think that there's just not a lot of predictive power now where, again, we're, we're still putting reserves into banks and then banks need to go out and buy treasuries. And the other thing I alluded to earlier with the problem of what will happen with the dollar is that foreign buyers are out there sitting thinking, you know, 180 on the 10-year uh, U.S. is a heck of a lot better than looking at comparable EU yields and some other countries. So, again, very, very contentious topics, some really brilliant people that see a lot more predictive power in the bond market. But stepping back as a generalist and a pragmatist, I would say that if you looked at what the 10-year has been telling us for 12 years, it's been you know pretty negative and the market's just shot higher and higher and higher. Yeah. Is there something you use, like, so what indicators are you using to follow and track like your predictions of inflation? I think that we don't try to be precise. We try to be more directionally accurate. And a lot of what we've focused on over the past three or four years has been more supply oriented, where I think the last 40 years of inflation and economic analysis has been mostly around demand, where as demand rises, marginal supply can come on at different price points. But right now in a lot of these markets, it's not as easy to just turn on supply even at radically higher prices. And if you can turn on supply, the lag is is a pretty long period of time. So we've been looking at CapEx numbers. And what does CapEx look like in the global metals and mining industry? What does it look like in energy? What does it look like in agriculture? A lot of these really critical inputs into the economy. And it does not paint a pretty picture for if we do get a real kind of that Goldilocks scenario of real consumption growth, even in a even in a ho-hum economic growth scenario, I, it's going to be really tricky to see how you can balance supply to meet this modest demand. Yeah, I got you. So that's kind of where we look. And we try to, st- we try to look at it more from the micro, the bottom up instead of the top down, because when you start trying to look at liquidity and the dollar and break-evens and swaps, it's... It's such a tricky market with just so many parties involved and some that aren't rational and some that aren't economically incentivized that it's a lot easier for us to, to look at real tangible stuff like, like that. And so, I mean, related to this, commodity prices, obviously been a lot of them been surging up. Some of them had a little bit of a, a dip, but are you envisaging these, these will continue to go up basically in line with sort of inflation and demands on uh, these hard assets? Yeah, I think just the same thing with CPI this year is the base effect is going to obviously make the rate of change look lower. So uh, it's going to be very hard to maintain the current CPI prints. But if you go from seven to four, it's still just a wild leap on a compound annual growth rate basis from where we were pre-2020. But again, I, I think that commodities, because of that supply component, because of ESG, I mean, a lot of this green initiative is going to be very inflationary. Um, yes, I think you're going to see a, a huge resurgence of uh, 
the uh, the old economy, if you will. Yeah, and as I think it's recently that uh, Goldman Sachs, but a few people have been talking about it, this commodity super cycle. Um, you know, something that could last a decade essentially. And this is what we're talking about, right? This is this is what you're saying. This this sort of demand on these these assets is going to outstrip the supply of them massively. Yeah, exactly. You brought up Goldman, where the the the, the strategist there, Curie, his term was the revenge of the old economy because we've. <laughs> We've basically tried to digitize everything, and now we're talking about metaverses and you know people working from home forever. Where it's you know, for the economy to actually work, you need a lot of these tangible hard assets, and um, it's not as simple as just plugging in a new server or you know adding a new software user the way that a lot of the digital economy works. This is long lead times and a lot of capital that needs to be invested in in real work and projects that just hasn't happened. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And so this leads me on to, um, obviously, the Inflation Beneficiaries ETF that you manage. Um, we've obviously talked about it before on the podcast, but it's a logical time to discuss this again and go go through you know, the holdings, why you've chosen certain themes, etc., and it's obviously had stellar performance so far this year. Uh, I think it's up something like twenty six percent this year to date so far. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's had really good performance. You know, it's new, a lot of capital inflows. Um, can we dig into the themes and, and why they perform well in this this inflationary sort of environment that we you know, we're, we're envisaging lasting a long time, basically? Yeah, sure. And so, yeah, we, we launched on January 12th of 21. And I think for our first calendar year, you're right, we did about uh, 26, uh, 26, 27%, which was, was quite favorable to the Aqui, um, certainly favorable relative to tips and, and CPI. So we're very happy with the performance. And we think that there's a lot of room to go. But the number one thing that we focus on is what we call hard asset capital light. So all of those areas that I spoke about earlier that are tangible, finite, hard assets or derivatives of inflation and hard assets. But I think the most important thing is to have that capital light business model. So to have a high operating margin, to have a scalable business, because it's one thing for your business to be able to increase revenues with inflation. So can Apple just tack on 5% a year because of inflation to the iPhone? Probably, maybe, I don't know. But there's a pretty good chance that their supply chain is going to go up 5% or more, and then their wages are going to go up, their advertising is going to go up. And so what we want to isolate is kind of a spread where revenue can inflect far more than costs, where you get margin expansion with your revenue growth and inflation. I think that's, uh, that's a big part of why we've been successful and why it'll continue to be successful potentially when the cycle inevitably gets a little bit choppier, because it is, it's, it's not going to be a straight shot, especially if this is a 7, 10, 15 year trend as we think it is. There's going to be a lot of volatility and starts and stops to inflation and the economic cycle where to go fully upstream into these producers where you have a lot of that capital intensity and risk, you're going to have to really trade in and out very, very aggressively. And that's something that most people don't have the ability or desire to do. Mm-hmm. And can you take us through some of these? Are you able to comment on some of these businesses that are in some of your holdings? Yeah, and I think the best way to look at it is we break down our portfolio into three distinct categories of companies. 
all inflation beneficiaries. First, there's the direct inflation beneficiaries. Uh, then there's the indirect inflation beneficiaries, and then there's the opportunistic inflation beneficiaries. And they they all basically have that same scalability, that low capital intensity, the margin potential, uh, but with some exposure, either first derivative or second derivative to the hard asset. And so the direct beneficiaries are those first derivative names where they have the direct exposure to the commodity or the hard asset. So juxtapose an energy royalty against an energy production company. The production company spends billions of dollars on drilling new wells, exploring for new hydrocarbons, infrastructure, refining. Uh, Now there's a lot more initiative to invest in green tech. It's a very capital intensive business and their break-evens are quite high. I mean, you could maybe maybe argue that global break-evens for oil are around 50, but I think that's aggressive. It doesn't really include the full cycle cost, the decommissioning, the cost of capital, but let's be generous and say 50. A royalty, you're basically just getting a check in the mailbox. So an energy royalty in the simplest form is just basically you have a, a pecuniary interest in the production of another producer. So if the producer spends hundreds of millions of dollars developing your royalty land, you basically benefit two ways, one from commodity prices going up and two from production growth. So you have two call options, if you will, on the capex of somebody else. And these businesses or businesses that are akin to them exist in precious metals, energy, base metals, uh, iron ore, Uh, even some pretty eclectic ones in land, uh, music, and pharmaceuticals. So it's a pretty wide net you can cast. It's not your just conventional kind of commodity exposure that you'll see in a real asset fund or commodity fund. The second category, the indirect beneficiaries, I'd call the second derivative, where they're benefiting from inflation in different areas of the economy, but without that pecuniary interest. And Again, I think that the best area to explain these are financial exchanges. This is just such an amazing business model, and it baffles me to this day where I've been following these businesses personally since I joined Horizon about 15 years ago. It was one of my first projects since joining the firm. But they're just incredible money-making machines where effectively a modern global financial exchange is nothing more than a supercomputer matching buyers and sellers. So if there's another trillion dollars of economic activity or trading volume on the exchange, it's quite literally another computer you plug in. I mean, maybe you pay a couple of your employees a little bit more, but it's really that simple. So the margins can easily be 40, 50, 60, 70 plus percent on these businesses. And one of the the biggest drivers to these businesses has been volatility and uncertainty in your end markets. And the biggest derivatives markets in the world, derivatives are the most profitable exchange-traded product, are interest rates, currencies, commodities, equity futures, bond futures. So just imagine a world where CPI is running four, five, six, and obviously the 10-year treasury is probably not going to stay at 180, but even if it doesn't, there's going to be a lot of speculation that it does or doesn't. So a lot of volume there, a lot of volume in commodities, the volatility and movement in equities and bonds. It's just a a self-fulfilling cycle of volume and profit for the exchanges. But again, that's that second derivative knock-on effect where they're benefiting within the financial services industry because of that product. Mm -hmm. Another great one is brokers. 
So I mentioned before, I don't like really capital intensive businesses, um, but I see the merits to shipping and real estate and insurance. If you're a broker, your revenue model is effectively volume times price. So as the entire world is going through a strong underwriting cycle for insurance, uh, shipping's gone through a very volatile cycle, kind of bouncing back and coming back in. Uh, and then commercial real estate, even if prices have been choppy, the, the leasing and sales cycle is picking up. And so, again, they're basically, their revenue model is, again, just very high operating margin as that intermediary. The last area is the opportunistic beneficiaries, where I'd probably argue these are closest to the direct beneficiaries, but a little bit more requisite risk in the form of fixed cost. So all the companies have some degree of fixed cost. I'd argue the first two groups, the direct and indirect, are extremely low. The opportunistic have a bit more requisite fixed cost in order to kind of establish the business, but then after they cover that, the margins, basically, uh, there's almost no variable expense. And I tend to use these names in industries where it's very difficult to get direct exposure. So within agriculture, you have the grain processors of the world where they procure the world's wheat and corn and soybeans and then crush and mill them into starches and sweeteners and olefins and then get them off to their intermediate and end customers. Um, another would be liquefied natural gas, where it's the U.S. has an abundance of gas, uh, but it requires a lot of infrastructure to transport that to the port to liquefy it, which basically means super freezing it, getting it out onto a tanker, and then sending it into northern Europe or northern Asia. Um, so again, that's going to be a bit of a smaller component of the portfolio, but the commonality here is that they all have exposure through some derivative to the inflation ecosystem, uh, albeit with this capital-like business model. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, just wanted to cover this point that you said earlier, just because it relates to this. So equities typically, you know, in like a low inflation environment, is many is positive for equities. But if we're running in this higher inflation environment, what you were saying is that there's only going to be pockets of equities that will do well in that scenario because you know of the sort of increase in, in uh, prices for goods in their supply chain etc like you commented on apple is, is that right so the broader market won't fare that well if it if inflation runs hot for a long period of time it'd be hard for me to see how that could happen you, you, you're right it's just the the valuation of the broader index depending on how you want to calculate your earnings but let's call it somewhere around 30 times um, that's a heavy that's a heavy burden to bear into a rate hiking cycle, especially if there's cost pressures on your margin. So simplified to that, I think that it's going to be difficult for the broad indices where these valuations are, are and what they're pricing in to do well. Um, that being said, I think it's going to be a stock pickers market and there's going to be a tremendous amount of potential for alpha for people that can really isolate special situations where earnings are going to inflect or unduly inexpensive businesses and things like that. Kind of going back to the pre-0809 world where that area that or that, let's see, I guess it was about seven years between the technology bubble bursting uh, on the NASDAQ in 2000 through 2007 was kind of the golden age of the Warren Buffett type of value investing. And you could argue that 
there were some unsustainable components to that with how debt was financing a lot of the, the financial system. But I think in a properly functioning market, you should be able to isolate alpha and, and generate returns primarily through alpha, not beta. And I would argue that most of the returns of the past decade have been more beta, just getting on secular growth, multiple expanding. That's in public and private markets. Yeah. And do you think that this will spell the end for sort of the easy passive investing uh, that's, that's you know done so well over the last well twenty years I suppose it's going to be harder for those mega caps to, to sort of perform. The obviously I, I you, they cannot continue to go up at the rate that they're going up. I mean at this rate they're the the market cap of a handful of stocks is going to be greater than the GDP of the United States in not too long. So the the large base is going to play a big part. Valuation is going to play a big part. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be really hard to just park into a large cap value, large cap growth, large cap anything fund and expect to earn these historical rates of return. And by the way, it, sh- it should be worth adding that despite this tremendous performance of late, if you kind of go back onto a longer 30, 40, 50 year period, the broader large indices are still right around that long-term trend of eight to 10. So Really hard to see how you can continue doing eight to ten, and then you know, where does the sixty forty portfolio break down? If you can't have equities doing all the heavy lifting, and bonds are doing two ish, you know two ish maybe if you're lucky, um, that's going to get really tricky. So yeah, I, I think beta is going to be a lot of the easy outsized gains have been made in beta. I think that if you're patient and you're going to wait twenty thirty years, you might do fine there, but it's because. Uh, I don't know what else you're going to put your money into today, but yeah, it's. Uh, I've been as an active manager on the buy side. I've been hoping and thinking this for quite a while, but it certainly looks like the inflection to alpha and alpha from active management is is inflecting, and we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, are there any commodities in particular um, that you've chosen that will perform well in this environment? You're, you're sort of hoping for commodities or companies? Sorry, commodities. Yep. I think my favorite two today would, would certainly be energy and agriculture. Yeah. Um, energy, we've gone kind of through it. But if you look at where global CapEx has gone um, since kind of the last, it's been obviously a lot of boom and bust since we were well over $100 a barrel in 2000, early 2008. But if you kind of come full cycle to today, there have been a few fits and starts, but CapEx is just down radically. Uh, a lot of the European multinationals are divesting. Um, people aren't putting money into these ultra deep water, really large projects because it might be a couple of years and a couple billion dollars till you start producing. Uh, and then you're kind of, when do you go NPV positive on that? It might be eight to 10 years. And if you listen to the common narrative today, we're not going to be consuming a barrel of oil in eight to 10 years, which I think is just ignoring physics altogether. Yeah. Um, again, I'm, I'm no climate denier. I, I'm just looking at the, the facts where we've supposedly been going off of coal for decades and we're yeah. still con- consuming a tremendous amount of coal. And that's both thermal coal for, for heating, for, for power plants, mostly in non-developed economies, but also metallurgical coal. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's going to be a long, difficult transition. And we're still lacking that breakthrough technology to really make it viable, um, what is that technology? Grid-scale batteries could do it. I don't see anything that's really all that promising for grid-scale batteries, but I think we can make the fossil fuel sector and energy a lot cleaner. 
Uh, natural gas is very clean. And if you can kind of do it, if you can extract it well, transport it, and then put it into combined cycle power plants and for heating and, and cooking and things like that, it's, that's the transition fuel here until hopefully we do come up with a more sustainable technology. And so again, this the other, the other factor, which I, I think I've alluded to is, uh, and this will transition well into agriculture, is that throughout the history of time, there are two givens as economies evolve and standard of livings rise. So as, as you pursue and as you achieve real per capita GDP growth, and I'm speaking more here about the non-OECD countries and your standard of living goes up, there's two things that invariably go up, your energy consumption and your caloric and protein consumption. So you can argue what is your mix of energy going to be, but right now a lot of those places in order to facilitate growth, unfortunately, they're burning a lot of coal, which is the worst fuel source. Um, How is it going to balance over time? I'm not sure, but they're going to be consuming more energy on a per capita basis. So even if we're more efficient in the West, the non-OECD is going to be demanding more energy. Transitioning to ag, again, you can argue the composition of calories and you can argue the composition of protein, um, but invariably that's going to be going up. And so what I mentioned earlier about us importing disinflation and deflationary forces from the East is going away. Uh, now they're going to be start competing for some of these raw materials. Crop yields are going down. Uh, farmland has been a pretty difficult investment just because the economics to farmers have been tricky. So it, you know, it's going to be really important to isolate where can you actually monetize uh monetize this thesis within the ag supply uh, supply and uh, company chain of, of different investments. But I think those two are going to be really exciting. And then obviously, copper is, is tremendously interesting, as is zinc um, and nickel and all of these conductive metals to the extent that the world has to pursue more efficient power grids, electricity generation, and renewables. The, the call on these metals is going to be just tremendous. Yes, because I think it would be an interesting next 10 years um but james yeah thanks so much uh, for coming on the show that's it's been so interesting to talk through uh the, you know inflation and you know things are gonna benefit not do so well uh i think everyone's gonna enjoy listening to this is there anything you'd like to say before you go uh, also actually we'd like if you just remind us where people can go to find out more about the inflation beneficiaries etf and and possibly follow you and your the content you create yeah, great. And you know, this is this has been great. You guys were nice enough to have me on when the fund was just launching, and uh, you know, we've been thrilled with the success in terms of assets and performance. I think one thing just to leave people with, and I'll, I'll give you plenty of places to find more information, is that the the idiosyncrasies to every business and to how you play this next inflection point in the economy, whether it's very inflationary, moderately inflationary, what happens with rates? I think that the interplay of the business model, the valuation are going to be so critically important. And that's why it's important to look at things like royalties and streamers and processors and brokers and exchanges. So um, it's it's not just this kind of, we've. I think a lot of the world, especially the younger investors have been taught just to kind of throw darts at smart beta, say, hey, energy, ag, tech, healthcare, whatever it may be. But I'm really convinced that they're, that the business model, the valuation management is going to be incredibly important. To that end, um, we're my firm, uh, Horizon Kinetics. You can just go to www.horizonkinetics.com. We're very generous with a lot of research. We publish prodigiously 
Uh, our chairman, Murray Stahl, puts out a lot of interesting notes, which he's just started this year about different things that he's seeing in the global economy, some micro, some macro, some more just thought provoking. Um, there's And there's a whole page where you, there's a whole landing page on the inflation beneficiaries fund, the, the ticker's INFL, presentations, uh, fact sheets, um, pretty much anything you could really want. So um, I encourage people to, uh, to to dig around there and kind of develop, uh, look th- a little bit through more of these themes themselves. Are you on Twitter as well? I am not. Um, the firm is uh, Horizon Kinetics. We post some of these things on Twitter. Um, where I'd say, I'd say we're of one of the the, the less active uh, Twitter firms. It's kind of funny. We uh, we started to realize what incredible content there is on Twitter, and so we started being a little bit more active. But you basically need someone. 24 hours yeah. a day to engage, to reply, to cultivate content. It's just, it's such a wonderful market, but you really need to dedicate resources to yeah, that you properly. Do. Yeah. You get out what you put in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, yeah, thanks, James. Thanks again. And uh, hopefully get a chance to speak to you again. I would love that. And, you know, I'd love to get, uh, I'd love to get over to uh, the UK sooner than later. I'll be keenly watching uh, the start of the Six Nations this weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you're ever around, yeah, just, just, just pop in. That'd be great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.